we have a ballot measure, which fortunately won't be on the ballot until 2024. And that would increase the minimum wage incrementally by a dollar a year until it reaches $18. So go up to 16, then 17, then 18 over a three-year period. But it's got to stop at some point. Otherwise, I think unemployment will ironically become rampant. The youth will not find these entry-level jobs and may not, as a result, find careers. What will it take to make California the thriving place it once was for small businesses? Or are we past the point of no return? Today's guest contends that much of the Golden State's woes are legislatively created and driven. Welcome to the first NFIB California podcast of 2023. We hope you have enjoyed our previous looks into the state issues of the day affecting Main Street small business owners. I'm Tony Melandra, NFIB California's Senior Media Manager. We're proud to have this podcast supported in part by Five Star Bank, serving customers through specialized banking solutions for entrepreneurs, business owners, and community leaders in California. We're also proud to have one of the NFIB family as today's guest. He is Sunder Ramani, NFIB California's Leadership Council Chairman. The son of immigrants from India, Sunder plunged himself into work at an early age, pulling weeds in neighbors' backyards for 50 cents an hour. Today, he runs and assists enterprises in the printing, aviation, construction, business development, media, and real estate industries, giving him an unparalleled aerial view of the California economy. Here to lead the discussion with Sunder is NFIB California's chief legislative advocate, Tim Taylor, who, in addition to representing clients from his own firm since 2009, brings longtime state government and state legislative experience to the job. Take it away, Tim. Thank you, Tony, for that introduction. Thank you for being here, Sunder. I had a opportunity to speak with you yesterday very briefly and i thought that your background was sort of quintessentially the american dream sort of a story can you tell us a little bit about your background before we get started tim thank you and thank you for having me here today it's always a pleasure to speak on behalf of main street but also on behalf of nfib and all the good work we do tim as i mentioned yesterday i'm an immigrant from india came here when i was very young all i could do was work and along the way got better at it and I'm now in my eighth career, rattle real quickly, commercial printing, textile printing, commercial aviation, construction, business development, land use entitlements, politics, which I ran for state assembly about a dozen years ago, media and real estate holdings. With that background, what we're going to be talking about today, Tony, uh, Tim, is I think important from the standpoint that I've lived this. I've had employees. I've had to sign the front side and the back side of the paycheck. So as opposed to just reading about it and theorizing and being philosophical, much of what we'll be addressing and what Main Street has to address are stories like mine. We've had to face this foremost as business owners, but also as community advocates and as people advocates for our employees. Tell me a little bit about, I think, where we are in history in terms of coming out of the pandemic, it certainly was a disruptive time for small businesses in particular. Do you happen to have a thought about the starting point where we are now with small businesses versus maybe where we were three years ago? What a great question. I think all of us would agree that social behavior is influenced by legislation. 
whether that legislation is at the federal level, at the state level, at the local level, all entities are driven toward whatever the legislative reward is. We've had that throughout history. You know, the winners and losers of all legislation, as they say, pork. In relation to COVID and prior to, we had already been dealing as small business, Main Street business owners with a lot of that social behavior adjustment through legislation that's occurred in Sacramento. Then COVID hits. Now you've got this uncertainty, uncertain future, the unknown. And not that I can blame the different legislative bodies for enacting as much largest federal, state, and local resources toward people, businesses, but unintended or intended, we've seen a huge shift in behavior, not only in society. You've got many people that decided that work was probably overtaking their life and they've decided to have a work-life balance. And many just left the workforce. Many are choosing, I want to work from home. Many are choosing, I want much more limited work life and much more of their private life. All good. But then as a small business owner, as you've seen, and you probably heard this from one end of the country to the other, where small business owners, specifically in the restaurant and service industries, are having a hard time bringing workers back. I've got quite a few friends that own restaurants, and nothing breaks my heart more than to see the owner, not only in the kitchen, but also busting tables and sweeping the floor. And this is now as recently as two weeks ago. So we are in 2023, three years into the pandemic or passed through the period of the pandemic resources. And culturally and socially, I think people have changed. Work has changed. Employees coming in to work have has a different attitude. And this is just more of a doubling down of what we saw pre-pandemic. Yeah, I agree with all of that. I also think that, you know, during the pandemic that tranches or swaths of the economy were shut down deliberately by the government, of course. They were overwhelmingly aimed at small businesses. They we go back to 2008, big businesses were too big to fail. Here, I think in during the pandemic, they were picking winners and losers. I think they classified them as essential and non-essential. So essentially, you kind of had this controlled economy in which the government was deciding which businesses would thrive and which wouldn't. And small businesses are certainly not insignificant in terms of their economic footprint. About half of the GDP is relatable to small businesses. Half of the employees in the country are relatable to small businesses. So when you sort of put them on the sidelines and, and de facto shut them down, in essence, you're going to have consumers that are driven and it's kind of counterintuitive, but they're driven towards the, the larger corporations and the bigger corporations that are already sort of dominating the market become even bigger. And I think that happened during the pandemic. And because of that, there was a transfer of wealth from the little guy to the big guy, unfortunately, or from from Main Street to, to Wall Street, as we like to say here at NFIB. I think very good points, Tim. One of the things that as a small business owner and that we appreciate is the lack of scale. And we're not apologizing for it. We have a business, we have an idea, we have a product, we hire employees. Those employees become family members. We get to know what drives them, what makes them motivated. We know about their families. We find out about their first child that goes to, off to college. We walk side by side with our employees. 
but that doesn't mean we have scale. What we have is a lot of empathy and a lot of heart and a lot of community-minded centrism of how we run our business. When we had the pandemic and the resources that were available, yes, too big to fail is what the tagline is. But those large companies have scale and they have people that can manipulate and or leverage those resources where you've got me as an individual owner. And I, yeah, I, I'm bigger than most. I probably have about 100 plus employees. But that doesn't mean they're extra employees. I don't have anyone else I can pull off of whatever their activity is and whatever their responsibility is for the organization and say, hey, why don't you work on the resources that are available now from Washington or Sacramento or LA County or wherever it happens to be. Everybody's essential. Everybody has a job to do, and but we don't have the scale to where the too big to fail, we're able to go lobby the members of Congress and, and their legislators and indicate that where the resources have been redir uh, redirected and primarily they end up in their pockets and not ours. Not to say that we all didn't strive to do the best to keep our doors open, but we just don't have the scale to compete at that level. Yet we are the job creator. We do have the empathy for our employees. And I think we serve the communities and our workers far greater than most of the large companies. California's seen about 500,000 people, I'm sure you know this, leave the state, and a lot of it has to do with the business climate. I'm from California, grew up here, love California. I think it is the best state in the country. You know, we have beautiful coasts from San Diego all the way up north to Eureka, everything in between surfers and, you know, where I like to go, it's more of a kind of a sweater type of a coast. We have Napa Valley. We have the Sierras. It, the topography is great. A couple of the best cities in the world in San Diego and San Francisco, of course. I want to see this state thrive. What do you think we can do to what, what, what has to change, I think, for the, in the business climate for people not to shudder and move, but to say, hey, California is a place where we can continue to do business and, and we can make a real go of it. We can seek prosperity and we can succeed. You made some very good points about what attracts people to California. Yes, the surf, the wine country, the redwoods, the beaches, the snow-capped mountains as we've experienced here in L.A. as uh, county for the last uh, two weeks of a relentless rain. Uh, but yet you're able to go golf in the desert, able to go ski in the mountains, go to this, and probably all in one day and end up at the beach. Well, I can tell you, and probably some great listeners to go bike riding too, for those that love to, we have a lot of bicyclists in this state. And what better state? Yes, I love California. Tim, if you can make a living doing all those things full-time and you can enjoy it, great. You're gonna. This is going to be a great state for you. But I have yet to see, if, frankly, I have a lot of winemaker friends and their own wineries. I can tell you it's a hard life there, too. And skiing, if you, have, if you can get paid to do that, uh, I can't believe that's how you sustain yourself. What we're missing here are some of the core things that people look for. Everybody wants your accessibility to housing. Mm -hmm. We need to make housing affordable. Breaks my heart that most of my employees, only two of my employees, live and work in Burbank, where my office is located. And the other 100 plus are located all throughout the county because and Orange County and uh, San Bernardino because they just can't find adequate and affordable housing nearby. I think that's common to everybody that's living in California. Having housing is important. A place to raise your family, have a front yard, backyard, or whatever it is, have a place to call your own shelter. The other side is 
accessibility to to work, workforce housing. It needs to be near to where their work is. Far too many Californians spend so, so much time in their cars. Most of the people at my office commute probably two hours each way on average. That's a, sh that's a shame that you're losing a better part of a day, one-fourth of a day in the car. So we have, and that's part of why we say we need workforce housing and we have to address those things. The cost of living, the cost of energy. California has its policies changing the world and global climate and climate change or whatever the uh, latest phrase is. But that has an impact on those people that require every last dollar that they earn towards living. So we've made energy very expensive. We've made housing very expensive. And we made access to jobs nearby where they live very expensive. And then we're probably one of the higher tax states. There are those hidden taxes. While people will tell you California's effective tax rate is lower, when you look at all the different ways that they can tax you from your utility bill to your yeah, gas bill to the, what you put at the pump, and then what you pay to the state, what you pay to the county, your sales tax, the effective uh, amount is quite high. So we, those are, I think, the four top areas. And pr I probably missed about five, six others that others would uh, come to the table with. But yeah. I think as I see from my employees, those are four things that constantly get under their skin. Yeah, I would probably add, well, first of all, I'd say you hang out with winemakers. I, I usually hang out with wine drinkers. It's just kind of how it goes. <laughs> I would probably add infrastructure to that list. It's a great list. I think our infrastructure is deteriorating a little bit, at least as compared to other states in terms of you know, bridges are in dire need of repair. New bridges in some cases, the freeways are not what they used to be in the Golden State. Let's be let's be honest. We all drive, especially your employees that driving two hours each way with the fuel costs and and the roads themselves in dire need of repair, as I mentioned. Yeah, and of course our water reservoir situation and grid. There's there's a lot that I think we need to do to get California back to where it was, say 30, 40 years ago in terms of the in terms of the infrastructure being viable and reliable. Tim, you're right. And I started off this conversation talking about how legislative policies change social and cultural behavior. California didn't end up here by accident. This was a well-thought-out, driven campaign to get us where we are here. Whether everybody agrees with it, I think that's a left to debate. I certainly don't agree with all of it. I think some of the motives are noble, but the biggest part especially as the empathetic small business owner, it's, much of all this is regressive. High fuel prices is a regressive tax. Yes, they've got credits for electric vehicles, but when your electric vehicles cost anywhere from sixty dollars to $100,000, I can't see the person delivering service, or whether it's your pool, your garden, are able to afford at that level, despite the federal date tax. So there's another regressive behavior. Energy costs. Everybody has to heat their home and would like that to light up their houses. Those things are regressive. So in order to move us away from the grid, in order to move us away from the car, and in order to electrify all this, and housing with all the zoning laws that have kept housing production from being aggressive, much more limited, these are regressive. For me, it affects every one of my employees on their ability to thrive here in California like we had. 40 years ago. But I believe that this is a thought out policy by legislators and it's being doubled down every legislative cycle 
and they seem to take one bad idea from last year and keep adding to it and compounding to it. At some point, I don't know if that's going to be enough to chase people away from California. I think they're they're leaving in droves for that reason. And the high tax state is one part of it. The other part is they can't provide for their families. It is very expensive state if you're not at the higher echelon of the income stream. Yeah, and that kind of segues into what I, I wanted to talk about next was some of the costs for businesses. And I think something that maybe we should chat about is the minimum wage in California. I know you have some thoughts about that, and I can certainly maybe add some context to that too in terms of what's currently going on legislatively. Sure. Minimum wage is a phrase that I would rather rephrase as starting wage. Tim, when I told you I came here as an immigrant, I pulled weeds for 50 cents an hour in somebody's backyard. It wasn't a formal paycheck. It was getting paid a few shekels at the end of a, a summer day. But when I took my first job, the wage was a buck fifty, a dollar fifty an hour, and that was minimum wage. When I got a raise to a dollar seventy-five an hour, I thought, boy, I'm leaving minimum wage behind. And it kept following me for a while. But I didn't stay there. It was a starting wage, it allowed me to get my foothold into a business. I guess I took out the trash and kept the bathrooms clean. It did all the work, but it taught me work ethic. So it's a starting wage. But lately, would you add the minimum wage has been mandated to go up every year? Yes, somebody coming in, it is not a living wage as they want to claim. It's a place to start. Gives me an opportunity to see if the person has a work ethic, can show up on time and do what's asked of them and play nice with everybody else. If they have those qualifications and they're willing to learn, they'll leave minimum wage quite rapidly or starting wage quite rapidly. But just because the state mandates it, and once again, I'll come back to the fact that le most legislators that are passing these laws have not signed both the front and back of a paycheck. They don't know what it is to come to payday and have to make everybody's check good. Having had that personal experience myself, what I see, though, is an upward pressure on all wages. When minimum wage is mandated to go up, everybody else feels that they have to get a bump up. Where does this come from? There isn't no mad, there's no golden goose here that lays all these golden eggs. There has to be a revenue stream to support that. So I think the legislators, without having personal experience of running a business and seeing what the cost of their legislation is, and minimum wage being one of those, I think it's going to be one of those areas that they'll come back and regret. And I'll give you a real-life example. Antonio Villaraigosa was mayor of L.A., and he mandated the city of L.A. increase their minimum wage, I think at the time, to $12 an hour or $13 an hour. We warned him that you're going to have teen youth unemployment spike because if you're going to have to pay more, you're going to get a much more seasoned employee at that wage rate. Sure enough, Two years later, the mayor was begging businesses to hire teen employees because they couldn't get jobs. This was a direct product of mandating minimum wage without understanding it is a starting wage. Yeah, absolutely. I think also, you know, to your point, this is a starting point for young men and women who want to enter the workforce. It's not the end game. And when you increase the minimum wage by, by fiat, then you prevent those kids from getting those jobs in the first place. And that leads to sort of more cascading problems down the road for them. Maybe they never end up getting any sort of 
measurable skills. Maybe they believe that they're entitled to something better, even though they've never started out, had a minimum wage, wage job. I had a similar experience to you. I started out mowing lawns and doing that. and had My first paycheck was a really exciting time. I think I'm just a couple of years younger than you, perhaps, or maybe a little more. But my my initial wage when I worked at a grocery store bagging groceries was, I think it was four twenty five, and that was a lot of money to me at that time. I was going to high school and playing sports and doing everything that you know high schoolers do at that time. I think we look kind of at the capital and their uh, perception of what the minimum wage should be. I think it's sort of out of sync with what business owners believe it should be in a very, very big way. And, you know, we want to have a free enterprise system, not a controlled economy. I think right now, and there's a little, there's a lot going on with the minimum wage in terms of different proposals, things that are out there, there are ordinances. We have sort of dueling banjos approach to minimum wage right now. A lot of different provisions, each one, I think, in, in some way, attempting to one up the next person. And when you still distill it down, I think it's really government overreach. And not only does it hurt businesses and and push them to the brink of going out of business, but I think it also hampers entrepreneurship in general. Who wants to start a business in that environment when they know kind of out of the gate, they don't know what the rules are or what the rules will be in one year or two years or five or 10 years down the road. That's also very challenging. As you know, of course, we have current state minimum wage of $15.50, which just went into effect at the beginning of the year, kind of adjusted for inflation. In addition to that, of course, as you were, as you were mentioning, there are local ordinances, as you mentioned in LA with Antonio Villaraigosa, and those can exceed that rate, and they do in places like LA. And then on top of that, we have a ballot measure, which fortunately won't be on the ballot until 2024. And that would increase the minimum wage incrementally by a dollar a year until it reaches $18. So go up to 16, then 17, then 18 over a three-year period. But it's got to stop at some point. Otherwise, I think unemployment will ironically become rampant. And and as we kind of talked about, the youth will not find these entry-level jobs and may not, as a result, find careers that are sustaining to them over the long term. Hi, I'm James Beckwith, President and CEO of Five Star Bank. We are excited to help bring you this series of podcasts focused on small business concerns in conjunction with the NFIB. When Five Star Bank was founded in 1999, it was business and community leaders, local entrepreneurs, who wanted to create the sort of personalized banking services they desired themselves. Services inspired by partnership and defined by shared vision and goals, a true understanding of the needs of small business owners. I know a meaningful relationship with a banker can be hard to find. At Five Star Bank, we are responsive, understand your business, and are committed to your success. We want to be a part of your growth and a valued partner supporting your vision and your dreams. You'll find direct access to a banker, complete online and mobile business banking you need to succeed. As an SBA preferred lender, let us help you with your startup business or existing business. If you're looking to make a change, 
please give us the opportunity to demonstrate what our personalized banking services could mean for you. I promise you individual attention from our colleagues who understand your business and are as committed to your success as you are. You can find us online at fivestarbank.com. Tim, all wonderful points. And let me speak once again to the size difference between large business and small business. With us, there's no one here making minimum wage, but they could be a few dollars away, but where minimum wage goes up, everybody gets pressured, or I get pressured to move everybody up to, from their relative position. When you have big entities, they're able to do, as you see, how they're converting their service delivery uh, as we speak to kiosks ordering at the at your restaurant to apps that you can order free pickup. And so that doesn't take a human to do that. So they're already that when you're a large company, they're able to put their robotic and investments in, in motion to go ahead and handle the minimum wage spike where many of us as mainstream business don't have that luxury. I don't have extra capital resources to invest in some level of reducing the employee count. And neither would I. We have a limited number of employees all tasked with doing something on behalf of the greater good of the organization. And so we don't compete in that arena with the large business. Whatever the legislators are trying to achieve, what they don't understand and they, because many of them have not lived it. If you look at the background, and this is not a knock on most people wanting to uh, be legislators, because I, God knows I tried unsuccessfully, and maybe I should be counting my blessings for not ever achieving that. But many of them don't have the relevant experience of running a business. By the way, this isn't just about business. We are speaking on behalf of NFIB and what we represent. We advocate for all those people on Main Street. But this happens when you're talking about education policy, health policy, social policies, all of these require some level of experience. I used to tell my kids, until you're a parent, please don't tell me all that you know about parenting. You have to experience it, you have to go there. You have to walk a mile in those shoes. And knock on wood, my daughter has delivered two grandsons that are pride and joy, however, it's funny to see the remarkable change in her behavior and attitude about being a parent. And I remind her with a chuckle, remember when you used to tell me how I wasn't getting it right. And now you're facing the same dilemma. Many of our legislators, I would love to see them ask for input, which is where NFIB, I think, serves the greater good. We constantly get, deliver input to them of what we're facing. And I think we need to continue that on behalf of all businesses, small and large, and behalf of our communities. Keep delivering what it is a day in our life and how it is we keep our communities afloat. Well, very nicely said. I really, I really like that. And congratulations to you on your, on your grandkids as well. And by the way, I, I didn't want to speak too much about specific bills, but we kind of touched on something that kind of leads me into another bill regarding minimum wage. And it's a current proposal, and I won't, I won't speak about the author or, or the number or anything like that, but it's winding its way through the legislature, and it's advocating for a $25 an hour minimum wage within healthcare facilities. But that's not just healthcare workers. That's everybody that works there, right? Not everybody that works at a healthcare facility is a nurse or a doctor or a technician of some sort. 
What's I think even more more onerous about it, and and I'm still trying to figure out if this is by design or accidental. I'd like to give them the benefit of the, of the doubt, but I'm not quite sure that I can. Is that any businesses that do business with this, whether it's a hospital or healthcare clinic, whatever it might be, that those businesses, the employees that are associated with those businesses have to have a $25 minimum wage as well. So you think about going into a hospital, there's a flower shop there or a gift shop, something like that. Or the guy that has a candy vending machine, he comes in and refills it. Maybe he has a couple of employees too. All of those employees and more that you can think of innumerable examples would be subject to a $25 minimum wage. Yeah, very interesting. I've, I, I've seen that legislation and I scratch my head. And yes, the, the where will it stop? They always say it's only for healthcare. Bottom line, I think you and I know and watched legislation like this in the past, whether it's minimum wage or other unintended policy adjustments, healthcare is just going to get much more expensive. And the healthcare already is a rubric of federal dollars, state dollars, Medicaid, Medi-Cal, Medicare. You put it all together, it is a rubric. Try to figure out your healthcare bill when you go see a doctor and try to understand how it is that a bill could be $4,000, but then it gets adjusted down to 800 and then you owe 200 It doesn't pencil out. So if you start mandating that everybody should make $25 an hour in delivering healthcare, whether they refold the flower shop or the candies or, the, mm-hmm. or take out the linens, healthcare is going to get more expensive. But then what will happen? They'll go ahead and subsidize healthcare because we're going to have a shortage of health delivery systems because certain hospitals can't perform. They don't have the leverage. They don't have the patient revenue stream as others do. And legislators now are going to go in there and say, well, we've got to go fix this, so let's throw subsidies at it. I, come, I hearken back to a great line from President Reagan, and this is much of how government thinks. If it moves, tax it. If it keeps moving, regulate it. And if it quits moving, subsidize it. You could see how a $25 minimum wage is, if it's moving, tax it. And then if they continue to hang on, start regulating, and that's, there's the regulation stage. And when they're out of business, subsidize it. And healthcare is too important. California with what, 36, 37, 38 million people, health viability, delivery of healthcare is absolutely important to be in California. So then there'll be a great cause by legislators to subsidize it because it's too important of a utility for the population. And how, in your experience, do NFIB members feel about single-payer option? The single-payer option, as we've seen elsewhere that we're in a single-payer exists, cost of healthcare goes up. We had FIB, and frankly, just a little side note, back about 15, 18 years ago, I did an interview for a CBS affiliate in Washington, D.C., specifically about healthcare and health delivery systems. And we've always advocated there's a few simple fixes that will help bring down the cost of healthcare. One of those is a medical savings account. The other one is the portability. Allow me to go ahead and take my health plan with me. And increased competition from out-of-state insurance. The legislators are the ones inhibiting our ability to go have anyone else shop uh, outside of, or anyone deliver healthcare from outside of our state. And transparency. When I see a price of the half gallon of milk, I understand whether it's going up or not. But health 
delivery and the tra- lack of transparency. When you have health insurance, you go in for whatever, and you really don't understand it. Why a four thousand dollar bill is only two hundred dollars to you, and right. only eight hundred to the actual delivery of the healthcare. This is where single payer is just that kind of delivery system on steroids. But there's some simple fixes that we'll continue to advocate for, and I think NFIB has a great role to play for any time a single payer comes out. Yeah, and those are all great economic reasons, and they are absolutely true. But then you also throw in the rationing of care, and that's that's a part of a single-payer healthcare system, too. You look at, I mean, it, it exists in the world. It's not like this is theoretical. Look at the NHS and how long it takes to get the simple surgeries there, what they do in Canada. I don't know that we want to become that. I think if you're talking about trying to keep businesses in California this is one more nail in that coffin of preventing them from from staying and thriving and enjoying the American dream here in California, unfortunately. Brings Tim, me no you know, pleasure to say that. No, and Tim, to that point, here's how that will affect me. I provide great health care. I absorb as much of the cost of delivering and providing health insurance as possible. Each year, we've had double-digit increase in rates year after year, and I've been absorbing them. But at some point, it's going to get to the place where I can absorb very little, and I have to pass it on to my employees and have them participate more. Well, this is just a moving from left pocket to right pocket. If I ask them to contribute more to their health care, that means then there'll be an upward pressure for wages because they'll need that to help pay for their share of the health care. It doesn't disappear. And then if I have to thin down the plan so to a plan that's affordable, it's usually not worth the paper it's written on. So now that reflects poorly on me as an employer because I'm not offering an adequate level of health care. And here's the other thing. It isn't just the employee. We cover the families, but that gets even exponentially expensive. But how is it in any empathetical state can you offer it only to the employee? Is any one of my employees supposed to go to the doctor when they're sick and tell their family, well, I'm sorry, you're not covered, but I'll be healthy. That doesn't work that way. It doesn't work in the human spirit. It doesn't work in how you run an organization. As a social enterprise, too, it doesn't work in the community. And this is the upward pressure when all these costs go up. And we're dealing with the same issues when you talk about transportation costs. As gasoline was over $7 a gallon, And I told you my employees are commuting on average two hours each way to commit. Well, those are upper pressures on wages. These are all a direct result of legislative policy that's affected the cost to live in California. And much of it is affecting those on a regressive basis. All this adds to the weight of running a small business. We don't have the scale to make up for it somewhere else. The revenue just doesn't show up. Indeed. And just before we wrap up, we're kind of coming to the end of our time here. Do you have any thoughts on retail theft? I know this is sort of the bane of the community as well. It's gotten a lot of national news. I think it's pretty well known that you can't be prosecuted, at least as a felony, for shoplifting and petty theft unless you exceed the $950 limit. Kind of a laughing stock in other states. What are NFIB members? Are they concerned about retail theft? And, and what are their thoughts and solutions potentially? What a great question. And while it doesn't appear on the face of it as something that mainstream business says, boy, this is a big issue, it is. 
they, many of our business owners are affected by the retail theft. This is once again social behavior adjustment through legislative fiat, trying to increase the bar when a crime is a crime. A crime is a crime at any level. But in real time, just look at city of San Francisco and how that rampant behavior, retail theft, add homelessness and everything else to it, you've had workers not coming back to the city. And the city is struggling to bring back a vibrancy to that town. And when you ask workers why they don't want to come back and work in the city and work in the offices, they'd rather work remotely. Number one thing they say is the level of crime. It isn't safe to come back into the city. If we wanted to do a case study on what would happen if we continued down this road, just look at San Francisco. And now they're trying to figure out how to eradicate some of those lax rules that they put in. In a small town like where, I'm, where I live, we have those big retail box stores that don't want to call the police when there's theft. And they see it happening right in front of them because they don't want the unwanted attention of law enforcement showing up. The unintended consequences, and maybe they're aware of it and they're willing to do this trade-off, we have a lot of people that won't go in those stores because they never know when they might be a victim or might be present when one of these retail thefts occur. So needless to say, sales are going to decline at that store because of the location and what the lack of law enforcement to enforce it. So it is a big issue for NFIB. It is a big issue for Main Street. Yeah, most of all our businesses are on Main Street. Retail yep. theft, if it's posted up to freeway, is going to affect our members. And if yeah. not, in their environment. And, and what a shame to think that to protect your own private property, you would rather not call the cops and sort of allow that to happen than to call them and suffer whatever the consequences might be thereafter. If you really, if you really don't trust that process, you really don't have a civil society. Go back to San Francisco and I just yeah. say, look at it in real time. I can give you the philosophical answer of what I think. San Francisco is showing us in real time how that legislative behavior has affected the entire community, an entire city. And San Francisco is too vibrant to go down that road. Well, thank you very much for your time, Sandra. It's been very enlightening. You have such great ideas and thoughts about those issues that affect NFIB members and Main Street, as you like to call it. It's been a real pleasure chatting with you. Really appreciate you coming on today. Tim, thank you very much for this opportunity. And like to continue the conversation because we know California is a big state and has a lot of more, lot more issues to debate over. Absolutely. And as you know, I've been on about one month now and I am really encouraged and excited to be part of the team. And I look forward to working with you well into the future. Well, welcome aboard, Tim. We're happy you're with us, leading us with this effort. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Sundar Ramani and Tim Taylor for your insights for this podcast. Again, we'd like to thank Five Star Bank for its generous support of this and future podcasts. You can learn more about Five Star at fivestarbank.com. You can find all NFIB podcasts at nfib.com slash ca slash podcasts. That's nfib.com slash ca slash podcasts. You can also find our podcast on your favorite podcast app by searching NFIB California. I would also like to thank Multipoint Content Strategies for its production of this podcast. You can learn more about them at multipointstrategies.com. Why podcasts for small business? It has been NFIB's educational mission for nearly 80 years to remind policymakers that small businesses are not smaller versions of big businesses. 
and that a one-size-fits-all rule regulation or tax can do Main Street Enterprises more harm than good. We hope these podcasts aid in better understanding. Finally, thank you to our listeners. If you like what you heard, please share this episode, subscribe, and give us a positive rating. We would appreciate it.